So we are talking sober and married, being sober and being married, because we've both been sober for a long time and we're both married. I'm hanging out with uh, with my husband, Aaron. And by the way, we don't recommend this at-home COVID test. No, actually we do not. But <laughs> here is how it goes, because it's all the rage right now. Uh-huh. You're supposed to open a can of beer and try to smell it. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. If you can smell the beer, then you're supposed to drink it to see if you can taste it. <laughs> now, I don't know how this test works after four go-arounds, but anyway, that's that's another thing. And if you can taste it and smell it, it confirms you don't have COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's a simple three-step test. Okay. Open, smell, drink. <laughs> and then if you can smell it and, you know, taste it, you're fine. Right. Well, you know, last night I did that 19 times. <laughs> and so, the result was? Uh, they were all negative. Right. Mm-hmm. So I could smell and taste them all. Okay. Well, all right. allegedly, anyway. Yeah. Well, tonight I'm going to have to do the test again because this morning I woke up with a really bad headache and, <laughs> and I felt like I was coming down with something. So really nervous as to how that test is going to work out. Clearly, somebody that was in recovery wrote that. That is hysterical. So I've been sober... Is it 14 years now? 15. 15 years. See, he has to keep track. And you, uh, fit, so you've, and you have 18 years. That's right. Wow. What this podcast is about, by the way, if you're just tuning in, and you probably are because this is actually the very first episode, um, I want to help you live a healthier life, both mentally and spiritually, which is why we don't recommend the COVID test. But I've taken my 28 years of experience in radio broadcasting and incorporated it with my uh, background in recovery and psychology and theology, too, because I just got a an MA in uh, Christian leadership, which I'm excited about just to... Master's yeah, degree. Just to share some of those concepts but also learn from you too. So in this podcast, you're going to hear entertainment, which is what I did in the radio for so long in the industry, but along with interesting interviews, um, Christian-themed recovery teachings, theology, and of course, self-improvement. And you're also going to learn about your God-given identity, overcoming addictions and codependencies. We're focusing on addictions today, and we'll get into a little bit of the codependencies because they kind of go together. Also anxiety, dealing with low self-esteem. And if you are interested by the way, in being a guest, you can check out my website, jodystevens.org, or uh, connect with me and just share a little bit about your story. And I'd love to to hear from you and just learn about how, you know, what God has done in your life to help you overcome challenges. Connect with Jody Stevens at yahoo.com. And my name is spelled J-O-D-I-E Stevens with a V. So we're hanging out now in my home studio, which happens to be now in Reno, Nevada. If, if you're listening in the Sacramento region, I was on the air at The Fish in Sacramento for 17 years. And then the COVID thing came and we just kind of felt like it was time for us to make a move. And I think you were born in Reno, so you're kind of going back home. I even have the black and white baby pictures to prove it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Reno's turning out to be a better fit for us, actually, too, because businesses are open. Yeah, such as they are. If you're in California and you're listening and you'd like to go out to dinner or, you know, get your nails done, just connect with us. Hook us yeah. up and we'll, uh, yeah. Come on up to Reno. Yeah, exactly. There are a few hur- hurdles to jump through, but everything is open, and that's the key word here, right? The uh, I think the other thing about Reno, too, is that it's a different culture than um, California. It moves slower. Um, people interact differently, and and um, it's obviously way less expensive to live here than it is mm-hmm. in California. You're like 30, 45 minutes from skiing. Well, and I grew up in Alaska, and so in Anchorage, actually, and so Reno kind of reminds me a little bit of that. 
But it's very pretty in the winter, and there's a lot. It, it is a lot closer to the snow and stuff like that. It's just a much slower, more relaxed uh, pace of life, which it is. And, and I will say that um, in in Reno, people drive a lot slower. And when I say a lot slower, I mean like thirty miles. An hour, you know, and and we always know who the Californians are because they, the, you know, and so they're um, passing people. Yeah, so people drive a lot slower here. So that's really really nice. Although I will say, um, we had a, a few problems problems until we got our California plate switched. I'll just say oh, that. Yeah. Because, you know, people are kind of, they're, oh man, little, Californians. Few look at, road you know. rage incidents. <laughs> yeah. Glad to get rid of those California plates. And, <laughs> you know, know, it's just a completely different culture here. And it's, well, it's still kind of a swing state, right? So, it, you know, things go back and forth. Correct. So politics, it's like real America. Yeah, politics actually means something here. And of course, we won't get into that. But my husband's been a political consultant for, I don't know, how a long, long time. So he could, if you years. ever want to hear anything about politics, you know, contact him, right? But so it's definitely goes back and forth, which definitely, I think is better because it keeps things alive. We, between the two of us, we have how many years of sobriety now? 33. That's amazing. Oh yeah, my we're, gosh. Uh, we're old. So we actually met at the big Bayside Church. So for those of you in California, you know, and we met in the singles program there. And I had literally just gotten sober and you had like a couple years of sobriety. And you were waiting for me to have like a year of sobriety before we dated. It was interesting because I didn't see you as a girlfriend or a wife or anything like that when Thanks we met. Thanks a lot. That's great. <laughs> It's the way it goes. I mean, tell me how many couples, you know. Well, like- and it's funny because I couldn't stand him. I, my friend had a crush on him, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I don't know what you see in him. He's so loud. He wears these bright, like, Tommy Bahama shirts. And, you know, I just, I don't know what you see in him. And and now we're married. And it's just, that is God's and I beautiful have, sense of humor. And I still terrible. have 15 Tommy Bahama shirts in the closet, by the way. <laughs> you, you do. Know, as further proof of, of God's sense of humor. Humor, but well, and because of your background, you didn't have like that many girlfriends, right? And you'll tell no. your story about losing the weight before. And I probably had too many boyfriends, right? Because of my background. And it's okay, we're sober. You know, this is the kind of stuff we talk about. So I'm like, when's this guy going to ask me out? Like, when's he going to kiss me? Like, what? You know, and it was so funny. You Finally, should. I go, yeah, I go, are you going to kiss me like ever? Well, that was like <laughs> after like the third or the fourth date. But I <laughs> think our first date was even your suggestion. So it was. So you basically asked me out. And then I after did, like yeah. three or four dates, when we knew we were like smitten with each other, you just kind of walked up to me and said, kiss me. You going to kiss me already? <laughs> Like, okay then. So, you know, uh, there's different, you know, rocky beginnings. But but I I, I tell you this right now, because both of us understood each other. We understood the the dynamic of being sober and and why we drank in the first place and the things that went on in the, the families. And we understand each other's quirkiness. And so when you can come together with people that are sober, it's a beautiful thing, whether or not you're married or you're just at a church or you're at an AA meeting because you can you can actually laugh at horrible things which is a whole other issue yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you understand each other's quirkiness you know the things that we do and that we had to do just to, to, to stay alive you know but and so I, it can be a very beautiful thing you got to add to that though and say the thing that's made our relationship work is that we had both worked our steps correct you're going to eat each other alive if you're not mature going into a relationship if right. you're both sober 
but then it works to the opposite extreme. If you both worked your steps yeah. at least mm-hmm. once and you've been doing doing the deal for a while mm-hmm. and you get into a relationship with somebody else who's sober, then it actually enhances the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so what a lot of people happen is that they rebound, they start getting healthy, they start feeling lonely, and then they just start trying to fill the void mm-hmm. left, you know, that alcohol isn't filling anymore yeah. with, with relationships. And I've seen that too. Whereas for me, I was at a place where I was just pretty much at peace with being single. Yeah. Then along comes Hurricane Jody, and I, you know, hadn't <laughs> dated anybody in almost a decade. God kind of smacked me upside the head, and you know, one time I was coming back in from doing my parking lot duty on Sunday morning into the singles group, and I looked across the room, and I just happened to catch Jody's face at the right time, and I watched her face light up like a Christmas tree when I walked <laughs> into the room, and I'm thinking, I think she likes me. She likes me, yeah. I think she likes me, and sometimes God can save you from yourself. I remember yeah. after the third date, driving home from the third date, going, okay, so this is love. Mercifully, we had very little drama. I think, you know, there was maybe about a week there when... You were calling all of your girlfriends going, is he the one or what have you? And it's Mm -hmm. like, for me, it was like I was in shock. And I had just quit drinking, so I had a sponsor. And I remember her saying to me, as I was all emotional about Aaron, she goes, suffer through the joy. (laughs) Funniest thing she ever said, because if you're sober, you understand drama and how (laughs) drama is sometimes what keeps you alive, what keeps things going, what what makes you feel normal, because perhaps you grew up with a lot of drama, which is typically how it works. And so you have to realize that, hey, you know what, peace, joy, good things are okay. Right. You deserve these good things and they're okay. You know, and that was I think that was what what was going on with me is it it was almost like, is is this okay? Is this okay to be happy? We had gotten some advice from our singles pastor early on to just apply the same principles that we've learned through sobriety Mm -hmm. to our marriage, which we did. Along with God being at the center of our relationship, we've always had the 12 steps at the center of our relationship and Mm -hmm. it's governed our communication. I admitted that I was powerless over Jody and that my life had become unmanageable. (laughs) Came to believe that only a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Made a conscious decision to turn Jody over to God as I understand him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of my relationship with Jody. You see what happens. You take the 12 steps and you can apply them to your marriage relationship. Right. And the huge thing about the, the fourth step in, in applying it to everything, uh-huh. th- these are, the, you know, the 12 steps actually are taken from the Bible and they originated from the Oxford House. And so yep. what it really is, is it's looking at your own part in everything. It, it, and that's all it is. And, and your mother would say, choose your battles. And it's similar to that, but you're going a little deeper to where you can't change the other person, but it's, you know, A, number one, is this worth you know, getting into it over. And then I think the beautiful thing about people that have done the work is we have the ability to sort of, um, Dr. Henry Cloud calls it, play the tape forward. And you look ahead and you go, so if I drink today or if I do this or if I cheat or if I do this, this is what it's going to cause. And this is how it's going to impact other people. And so you've really done the work where you're looking at your own self and your own part in the dysfunction of the relationship. And if you can take ownership and the other person can take ownership, then you're gold because that's all it really is is I it, right. you know but if one person can't take ownership 
of their stuff, that's when you're stuck. And that's usually how relationships come fizzling down, how people lose sobriety. Because anybody like you and I both know when you see someone full of blame that's trying to get sober and and you know my brother would go through this a lot he actually died of his addiction in in 2015 but he would i would always know when he was headed for a relapse because there was a lot of anger and resentment and and not right. really owning your stuff and when you do that you know you're like a ticking time bomb that's right and so it looking inward is huge we knew that we had a lot to overcome from our background and so forth and uh, we made a conscious decision that we weren't going to hold each other responsible for what what brought us here to the relationship mm-hmm. you know the d word has never been a word in our relationship i can't recall us ever yelling at each other or, or, or any of that kind of stuff i can recall having arguments it's having that and being able to do that and having those steps and having that program to be able to, to focus and balance this stuff so that way when you did end up getting counseling for a while for a very a variety of things, it actually enhanced our, our marriage and actually brought us closer. And because even though it was for issues that you had that you've had since your childhood and what have you, it related to today and then the relationships changed. Mm-hmm. And like in in my life I've gone through a variety of traumatic things since uh, we got married. But that's all just uh, the same thing, just crap from the past bubbling out and finally being worked out because at whatever point that this stuff came out, I was ready to deal with it then, whereas I may not have been ready to deal with it before. Mm-hmm. And there have been things that have happened in our marriage that I understand that, or things that have not happened in our marriage that I understand that, uh, you know, at this point in God's infinite wisdom, we probably would have been in serious trouble had, you know, certain things that we thought we wanted at the time happen. Well, and they say in recovery, too, the peeling back the layers of an onion, that more will be revealed. And yep. I can look back, you know, at my age and, and think, gosh, I wish I could have understood all this stuff when I was younger, but then it might have killed me. So I think it's I think right. God's timing is perfect, even though we feel like we're so much older now and we have all this wisdom that we wish we would have had when we were young. But that's just how it works. I got sober and I was still working in Christian radio. I had just gotten the job on the fish in Sacramento and I was still drinking. But I remember my my journey to sobriety when I was living, when I found the Lord, I was living in Portland, Oregon, and my brother at the time was really bad in his alcoholism, and I was more just kind of hiding mine, because everything was about his addiction, because it was so prominent, and, and sadly, he ended up passing away in 2015. He was trying to get sober, and he was in an Oxford house, which is interesting, because that's how the, the 12 steps and stuff originated, was, was through the Oxford, and um, he was in there, and he, but this was actually a different home ministry. Uh, it was just a house full of dudes trying to get sober, and he and invited me to church and I was hung over that morning didn't want to go but I told him I would go you know I was a I was an ethical al- alcoholic right I had to do what I said I was going to do so I show up and we're all in this little room and we're singing praise songs with a bunch of drug and alcohol addicted men that was when I first began to feel the hope of God and to feel the Holy Spirit. But it was very painful at the time. You know, it was very, I was just overcome with emotion. And it wouldn't end up, I wouldn't end up stopping drinking for another couple years. But that's where it started. Got kind of radically saved. And then I continued drinking for like another three years. And I, would t- I will tell you this right now, that God was with me 
through that whole time and he knew that the road that I was going to go and so when I finally did get sober I was still working at the fish and then things just started to get to get really really bad where I was I was waking up shaking and then this uh and then I was starting to take Xanax I was taking because I had anxiety and so I was drinking booze drinking tequila and I'm taking I'm taking Xanax and I'm I'm waking up literally thinking this is this is going to kill me if I keep going on like this I am going to die but I couldn't quit like most people who initially try to get sober I started this bargaining process where it was like okay uh, God, uh, just you and me here, and and if you will strike me sober, I'll do you know this 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 and the other thing, right? And so I began the bargaining, and you know because I wanted to, I wanted to, I didn't want to do the work, and I wanted to kind of have my cake and eat it too, and <laughs> uh, it doesn't work that way. And so nope. the the one of the things that I did it was I was like, okay, Lord. Because I've been a DJ for 28 years. I had a lot of music. I said, if you will strike me sober, I will throw away all my heavy metal CDs. So I go and I've got like just garbage bags of cassettes and I've got like, you know, really crazy stuff, you know, like uh, Danzig and Dio and, you know, and all this stuff. And I and I'm, I'm putting and I have these two, you know, the big heavy duty garbage bags. I fill them with this and I take it, throw it all away in the trash can. I go back inside and I'm feeling really like, wow, I've just I've really done How long it. did it take before you were drunk yeah. again? Yeah, that night. That night? Yeah. I was like, I've really done Gosh, it for God. I really sacrificed. Sacrifice for you God. Didn't even get a, you didn't even get a day out of that. Here's the lesson that God spoke to me. You know, in, in my spirit was that you've got to do the work because if you don't do the work, you don't have a testimony. I'm not. I don't do a magic wand. You need to go to one of those meetings. You go get a sponsor. You go do the deal. You do the work, and then you get sober. And the minute I got the sponsor and started to do the work, I never looked back and I never drank again. It was actually pretty easy for me once I had that accountability. Not that easy for everybody, but I'm just saying... You know, God is a God of relationship, and he wants us connected because he understands that the root of addiction is typically invalidation, not knowing your feelings, and feeling very disconnected and not having any connections with people. And so the, the way to stay sober is to not isolate and to be connected and to work through your stuff. I mean, I actually have to admit I screwed up. Yeah. And I actually have to let that jerk be a jerk and just fix my part with no expectation that jerk's ever not going to be a jerk. Yeah, that that's uh, that was tough stuff. But you know what? The thing of it is that prepared us for marriage because I get to let Jody be Jody. And you, uh, how you got sober was pretty amazing because because when we met, he had just lost 130 pounds. Yep. And I've gained about half of it back, but that's another story. <laughs> we get fat together, we overspend together, but we don't drink. Yeah, I will that's tell exactly you that right. much. I will tell you I will tell you that much. So so you were an alcoholic and you were also grossly overweight. So you had kind of two two addictions going on there. Yeah, I was a ton of fun, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> you were. I died. Three hundred and twenty ish pounds, I think, at some point. Remember huffing and puffing walking into an AA meeting and But you got on your knees and Well the fact pretty... the matter was I just got to a place where it's 
it's like I don't want to die. I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. live like this anymore. And it's like you know, um, and it takes what it takes. You know, sec. If you read the twelve by twelve, which is the thing that's a companion to the Big Book of AA, twelve by twelve is a step steady book, and there's a thing in the second step, the restore to sanity step, mm-hmm. where it basically says most people have to be pretty badly mangled before they'll commence to solve their problems. Yeah, there is no easy way. The only way around your alcoholism is through. Yeah, exactly. And plowing through your alcoholism, why did I drink, you know, what happened, et cetera. And then realizing that a lot of these people that triggered you or contributed to your story, you're never going to be able to get justice. You're never going to be able to change these things that happen to you and stuff like that. And you have to just walk away from it. You have to walk away from the bad employer, the bad family member, the friends, the abusive pastor, whatever the heck it was. You can't change these people. And those are the things that will trigger you and cause you to drink. So here we are married, right? You know, mm-hmm. what, 14 and a half years into being married. Mm-hmm. And guess what? I can't change Jody. Right. Jody doesn't trigger me. We don't trigger each other into arguments and things of that nature. We, and I can't change him. And we can't change our family. We can't change our kids. We actually right. don't have any kids. But you know what I mean? You. But, but here's, what you, here's what you can do and what you really learn in sobriety, like Aaron was talking about, the, the way is through. When you're in a family situation, and there's a lot of family dynamics that contribute to this, um, and you feel triggered, you feel uh, the anger coming on, you feel these things going on, the only person you can change is yourself. And once you begin to realize that and work through this stuff, and you change how you react to the dysfunction of life, other people oftentimes will change. God isn't that And a lot of times they don't, but you have changed, and that's the only thing you can control. And once you understand that, that's what serenity is. God grant me the serenity to accept what I can't change, other people, the courage to change what I can myself, and then the wisdom to know the difference. And there's a lot of wisdom in trying to know the difference. And when you do that, you don't bring your family garbage into your marriage. You don't contribute to making it worse. You don't bring it into your marriage and stuff like that when you're able to to do that serenity prayer and Mm -hmm. work your steps and sort through this stuff and what have you. So I wanted to say that the wisdom to know the difference in the serenity prayer is important because I'm a a person who I've struggled for years and years and years with massive insomnia. You know this. You've walked me through it. And what happens to me is I can't get the tape in my head to shut down. And I finally realized that that continual, uh, in, in AA they call it the committee in the head, uh, in spirituality it can be uh, the enemy, it can be demonic, but it can also just be you're obsessing and you're trying to control stuff. Because if you're, if you're laying awake at it and you can't get the tape to shut off, I realize this is actually trying to control what I can't. So just because you're not acting on it and you're not an overt controller doesn't mean that you're still not trying to control everything. So it's it's turning that tape off and realizing, okay, you know, here everything I'm thinking about, these are all things I cannot control, but here's what I can control. And that can actually help you in sobriety, in serenity, and actually dealing with anxiety and, and then also dealing in prayer, of course, and then also dealing with insomnia. All these things work together. And then we get to look at each other and laugh. <laughs> Understand yeah. we're stone cold crazy. Yeah. We're eccentric. We're strange. And it's okay. Jody is safe to be eccentric and strange in our household. I'm safe to be eccentric and strange in our household, including my Tommy shirts. You mean I'm strange, really? Yes, you are. You're very strange. You're eccentric. And it's cool because it's part of the reason why I love you. 
And so many couples, they screw themselves out of some of the just richest part of being married because they're always trying to control stuff. They're always trying to make their partner, you know, conform to a certain thing and what have you. It's like, no, this is crap. This is my wife. I married her like this. You know, (laughs) obviously you don't let somebody be immature, but it's what I'm saying is that you understand who your wife or husband is. Let them be who they are. And grow together, and don't sweat the st- don't sweat the small stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like I just you don't keep a list of everything your wife or husband does that irritates you. Yeah. You don't keep a list of everything your wife or husband does that you want to change because if you do that, you might as well just go to divorce court and get it right. over with because mm-hmm. you're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Can't do that. You know, we just focus on the 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 big stuff like talking about our sobriety and things that are important. Sometimes we just sit and we laugh our you know what off. Having the long conversations about stuff, even if we're talking about the same thing over and over and over again, three or four weeks on end, you know, our faith in Christ, the things that matter. And also, a lot of times when when I grew up, and it wasn't intentional, I was taught to basically ignore my feelings. There was a lot of invalidation. So here's the thing about addiction and recovery and family dynamics, without getting too deep into it, it's a cycle. Okay, so you have addictive parents, maybe one's a codependent, which is basically uh, one of the words for that is like a para alcoholic where someone doesn't drink, but they still have alcoholic behavior. Okay, so you have this dynamic of stuffing your feelings of addiction, of codependency. You, you can't always sort it all out. Well, are they an alcoholic or are they a codependent? Yes. Okay. Right. They're both. And so, so one of the things that happens when you're in a dysfunctional family dynamic that's gone on for generations and generations is feelings are not dealt with and they're not dealt with well. Right. And nobody knows how to deal with feelings because maybe right. dad was an abusive alcoholic. And, right. and so a lot of the things that I heard was don't feel that way or we don't right. know why you feel that way or just invalidating your feelings because when you came from a terrible or a hard environment and your teenager has difficult feelings, you don't know how to deal with those feelings. So these feelings get shut down. And when you shut down feelings, what's going to take over? Physical is going to take over. So for me, that's what happened is it was the the eating or the boyfriends and the drinking and the drugs that took over because I didn't know who I was. So stuffing was a lot of this. And so now, even if it's just, if I'm just bothered by something, if I can express it and say, Gosh, uh, and really say what it really was and say, I'm, I'm really hurt that, you know, whatever, I've gained all this weight and my friend's skinnier than me or whatever it is. If, if you can get it out there and talk to each other about it, there's something so therapeutic about that. It's, it's amazing. Like the other day, I don't even remember what it was. I was upset about something stupid and I just put a voice to it and then we cracked up about it and then I felt hopeful again because the experience was validated and I had expressed that feeling. I wasn't trapped inside myself anymore. And a lot of what addiction is, is feeling trapped because you can't say what you feel and when you say what you feel, you're told you're wrong. So you might as well get drunk, right? And so that's why the community and communication is so important. You have to have emotional maturity and you have to be healthy emotionally in order to have a good marriage. You don't have the luxury of being able to play games with your feelings. 
Yeah. Oh, your partner yeah. has to. Your partner has to understand how you feel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If your partner's not capable of understanding how you feel, then you better get into a counselor's office quick. It's just key because the thing yeah. that saved our marriage and has made our marriage so harmonious. We understand how each other feel, and we're tolerant of each other where we're at. Yeah. I do things for my wife that I don't like doing. <laughs> she does things for me that she doesn't like doing. But we do it because we know how important it is to the other partner. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the ability to tell each other how we feel without it, you know, causing an argument or irritation or what have you. Because I understand that this communication is occurring for the long-term health of our relationship. Mm-hmm. And if my wife doesn't know how I feel about something, she's going to keep doing it, and it's going to keep irritating me, and then I'm going to explode. You don't do that. What she was basically explaining is that you know one of the keys to our relationship is the open and honest communication, but also having the um, emotional maturity to be able to process our feelings and be able to relate them in a way that's constructive to our marriage and deepens our understanding of each other and, you know, strengthens our partnership. And so that's enabled us to get through, you know, several, you know, our our families are frightfully screwed up, but we're having to work that out because as we're getting healthier, it's wrecking the dynamic of our family outside us. So one of the best things we've been able to do to protect our relationship is by communicating this out so that nothing else gets between us. Mm-hmm. We've had employment situations in our relationship that were unhealthy, that mandated change. We've had friendships, people trying to meddle in our marriage, whether they were realizing they were doing it or not. And the only way to be able to survive those kind of attacks to our marriage has been having the 12 steps so that we could separate what part we took ownership of. Correct. But then also to be able to communicate, for me to be able to communicate with my wife, tell her, hey, this situation's wrong. This is why. Mm Mm-hmm. But also having the wisdom to understand, well, okay, I don't like this situation or I don't like this thing my wife is involved in, but I'm going to have to exercise some restraint and let it run its course and then be here to help pick up the pieces when it's done. Mm -hmm. I've done that a few times in our marriage. And boy, I tell you what, as a male, that is extremely (laughs) difficult. But I think what yeah. you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the, the dynamics and stuff and, and sorting it all out, because a lot of times when people come straight out of sobriety, everything's just black and white. You know, yep. it's like mom's bad. And the, one of the one of the roles that um, in in the codependent and addiction, addicted family dynamics is the scapegoat. There are many different roles. And if you read this really great book, The Codependent Reality, it's an old book by Robert Sebi called Lost in the Shuffle. It'll talk about the different roles. And the family dynamics, don't talk about your feelings, all these sorts of things. But one of the the, the roles is the scapegoat, and, and it's always looking for somebody to blame in the family. And what I always like to say, in, in any dynamic, it's a dynamic, and everybody plays a part. It's in kind of sorting all that out, and, and that's when you can finally be healthy enough to step out of the dynamic. And even when you recognize your part, wow, I seem to play the victim a lot. And the blessing of being in sobriety is you're able to look at this. You can see it in everybody else, but you can see it in yourself. And most people spend their whole life with kind of these blinders on. They really don't see their own crap, you know, or other people's. And so there's there's a beauty in that, but also understanding that it really is a dynamic. And there's never usually one person to blame. You mean it's more than just your fault? <laughs> <laughs> or more than just somebody else's fault, right? No, I, you know, it's always your fault. Right, exactly. See, God, that, that woman you gave me. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. this is your wife. To the men that are listening to this podcast, this is your wife. And God gives you a wife because she's the single most important thing to you on this planet and in this life. If you start with an attitude of treating her as such, it's going to go a long ways to solving whatever problems there are in your marriage. When it became clear on my third date that uh, I had been hit by a hurricane and uh, I was in love with this this gal, this person named Jody, who was on the fish and kind of quirky and strange. And <laughs> when I knew that was going on, I understood because of going through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and then also having my faith and going to Bible studies and understanding what God says about marriage, that this woman was going to be the single most important thing in my life. And if you have that perspective, you see it's another layer of defense against what comes at you from the outside. My wife is the single most important thing in this physical life. Well, I think we did. We, we have God, marriage, sobriety. And let me tell you right now how often in our marriage we've come out of, of a difficult situation and said, wow, my faith was attacked, my marriage was attacked, and my sobriety was attacked. You have to keep those top three in business. They say, yeah. what's your top five? Well, you know what? In, in life, what, what's your top five? What is your top five? What is your top three? And if you can keep that in mind, and you will understand then that and this is where you're going to get attacked. You're going to get attacked by the enemy. He's going to attack those things. And then when you can look at it as such and work through that, that's a big deal. Without God, I would not be sober. And without sobriety, I would not be married. Right. And everything else is secondary to that. You mm-hmm. know, my job, my house, my cars, all that stuff. That's all secondary to those top three things. That's kind of your, if you're a military person, it's called your chain of command, Mm -hmm. God, sobriety, Mrs. Park, in my case. I think for both of us and for those in sobriety or trying to get sober, you need to understand it's a a progressive disease. That's correct. My dad found my brother dead, literally dead, and tried to do CPR, and it was too late. And we went through crazy with my brother for like 20 years and uh, my friend Shelly dead my friend Heather dead I can't imagine what kind of crap's waiting for me if I drank again that's the thing so, holy smokes you know it, it it's not something that's going to get better it's not something that you can bargain with it's not something you get to have your cake and eat it too when I think about oh oh I miss that life or this or that and then I think everybody in my family who who didn't stop drinking is dead so there's not a lot to miss Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if you keep going that route, I'm sorry to put it so bluntly, you're going to die because it doesn't get any better. You're going to die young and you're going to die miserable. And alcohol is a slow, painful death. It doesn't kill you. It doesn't kill you quick like sometimes Mm -hmm. cocaine or heroin can. Alcohol is a slow and painful death. Sometimes it takes you years years to die because your organs shut down one Mm -hmm. at a time. And yes, I'm being graphic on purpose because it's like when I was 31 years old and I was 320 pounds and I was huffing and puffing going up a, up a flight of stairs, mm-hmm. I had a little dose of that when I saw my eyes sunk in the back of my head and all my joints hurt and stuff. I said, wait a minute, I'm only 31. I'm not supposed to feel this yeah. way. And I got a little taste of what was waiting for me. And, it's, and I finally, at that point, got scared enough that I was willing to try something other than drinking. And I was blacking out and... Me too. To the point of, this is totally graphic, like waking up on my own vomit and remembering the rock stars that died that way. And I remember finally getting a sponsor. I'd been sober for four days and I was walking down the hall. I just specifically remember, use the restroom. I'm walking down our hall and I was 
that moment I stood there and I was scared. I was scared. I was like, this is live or die. And I remember saying, God, don't ever let me forget that fear. I don't want to live in that fear, but don't let me forget that moment (laughs) of what could happen if I don't, if I don't stop. And looking back now, when I look at our life and I think, oh, I miss the, the fun times. And, you know, people think they all, it's just like becoming a Christian. Well, if I become a Christian, I'm going to miss out on all the fun. But life with God is amazing. Oh, if I quit drinking, I'm going to miss out on all the fun. Sobriety is amazing. Just just waking up when I first got sober and being up at seven and seeing the seeing the sun come up and having a clear head. It was just beautiful. And that's just the beginning of, they talk about the promises in Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of those is that you will begin to handle situations that used to baffle you. I can handle things that used to baffle me because of sobriety and working through this stuff. And I know you can say the same thing. We've gone through stuff that we never, ever could have dealt with the in definition business. Of fun, and the definition of fun changes, too, by the way, in sobriety. <laughs> yeah. So instead of getting wasted and out of your mind because you're not freaking hungover, you can go out hiking or snowshoeing or skiing or what have you. I finally got him to get a pair of snowshoes. De- de- <laughs> he the hates the snow. but fun <laughs> changes. You're able to work out. Society has sold a garbage lie in that, you know, smoking, drinking, doing drugs, and what have you. Not only are they rights, but they're what you should do. It is much more, how do I want to say this, fulfilling, Yeah. because it's hard. You have to make a conscious decision to do the right thing. So we've been talking about a variety of different concepts and what have you, and I want to just kind of bring it back here and say, how does this relate to being sober and being married? Mm-hmm. Understand that sobriety first Every morning I get up and quietly pray, God, save me for myself. God, give me wisdom. God, (laughs) give me another day of sobriety. And it has an impact through the way that I see life. And because it has an impact on the way that I see life and the way that I process and the way that I behave, it has an impact on my marriage. And they say, if you practice these principles in all your affairs... They say that at the end of every AA meeting, it's in the 12 steps and 12 traditions. Mm -hmm. If you practice these principles in all your affairs, chances are you won't have any affairs. (laughs) Well, what does that mean? That means these principles of AA that cause you to gain emotional maturity and spiritual maturity, have mature, healthy relationship, let go of stuff you need to let go of, deal with stuff you need to deal with. Mm Mm-hmm. You apply that to your marriage, right? And all of a sudden, you start to realize my wife is the most important thing to me on this earth, and I'm going to treat her as such, even when she annoys the hell out of me. (laughs) You mean I annoy you? You're kidding me. Every day. But the fact of the matter is, is that I don't rub your face in it when you annoy me because that... Kind of like when I was slamming the doors last night because you were snoring, so I had to go sleep in the other room. That was one of those things. And then I woke up this morning and I was like, wow, you know, you could have snuck out of the room and, and not woken him up. It was annoying that he was snoring, but it was really wrong of me to get like upset about it. And so I woke up and just said, you know what? No big deal. Uh, it's going to be a great day. And I, you know, God forgive me for for being angry. And it's just another little thing I got to work on. You know, my temper I have to work on because I grew up in kind of, you know, with anger and stuff. And so it's just one of those things where I had to look at it and just let it go. And this is how it relates to having a healthy marriage. (laughs) Yeah. This is a real, like, this morning example. Yeah. I barely remember her slamming the doors. Oh, that's good. (laughs) I, I barely remember her slamming the doors and walking out of the room and 
And I said sorry and rolled over and probably started snoring again before she'd even turned the lights off and left the room. (laughs) And here I'm thinking he's up all night and he's upset about it. The next part of it, obviously, is when you do a four-step, you inventory all the people, places, and things. Yeah. And so by doing a four-step as it relates to our marriage, which we have to do all the time, we understand the external influences and the external pressures on our marriage so that way we can keep them out. We want to keep the external pressures out of our marriage. Yeah. I can't even begin to explain to you that, you know, this is why when you're doing your wedding vows, they say you will cleave to her. You will cling to each other. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing that you did when you got sober or while you're getting sober is that you're pushing everything out and sobriety is becoming the most important thing in your life. Your marriage has to come to the same place. Even though it's secondary or sobriety, it's like it's it's number three. It's a close third because you don't have your marriage without your sobriety. Right. And in some cases, I don't think we'd have our sobriety without our marriage because I think there's periods of time since we've been married that mm-hmm. we've literally kept each other sober because of the accountability of of having that other person around in the way that we in the way mm. that we live, right? And, and without God, you don't have any of it, right? Because He's the one that's that right. has restored us to sanity. I, I don't think I ever would have gotten sober because once once I found the Lord, I understood. Okay, a this isn't working for me. This is this. There's a lot of sin. And there's a lot of problems in my life, and I need to get it together. And I need to get sober. And it was God that convicted me of that, and God that gave me the courage to do everything I've ever done today without Him. I I'd, I wouldn't have sobriety, and I wouldn't have my marriage. And so, uh, if you are listening to yep. this and you think that God is just some pie in the sky notion, uh, He is real, and He is waiting for you to give your life over to Him. In the 12 steps, it talks about a concept of came to believe that only a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Yes. If you are getting sober, and even if you're an agnostic or you're an atheist, you completely think there is no such thing as God, or you have a very, very uh, standoffish concept of God, or God may or may not be real, or you're still searching, it will tell you that... The reason why AA has the concept of a higher power is because it gives you something outside of yourself to rely upon Mm -hmm. in order to get sober. In the case of Jody and I, we are both born-again Christians, very open about our faith in Christ, because we know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took the bottle with him. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took our family, he took our dysfunction, he took every stupid thing we ever did with him. That very, very specific knowledge and hope that comes from our faith in Christ was so real, and it was right there waiting for us when we finally decided we were scared enough or whatever it was in both of our minds to get sober. And because Jesus Christ was something very specific and tangible, we know he existed because there's plenty of historical record to prove that he existed. We knew that Jesus Christ was the one true higher power with which we could center our sobriety on and get where we needed to go because I knew that if I looked for Jesus Christ, I would find him again and again and again. And then knowing that the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous were actually based on parts of the New Testament, it made it real. An interesting story when I... Uh, first found the Lord, I couldn't quit drinking, and I was dreaming, and I I was trying to find Jesus. I was looking for him, and I, I, <laughs> I climbed a mountain, and I went to the top of the mountain, and I was like, God, where are you? And Jesus showed up in the dream, and I said, please help me quit drinking. And instead, he picked me up, and he held me, 
and he rocked me in his arms for the longest time. And that was the whole dream. And that was years ago. And I remember now looking back going, what was that all about? And I, I couldn't understand it for the longest time. And that was God just saying, you need to be loved and held. And the rest will come later. And it was understanding that love. And so I just want you to know, I just want you to know that if you're struggling and you're wrapped up in an addiction and a sin and you've got all this guilt and stuff, understand that God loves you and he understands why you're doing what you're doing. It's because of pain. It's because of abuse. It's because of hurt. He's not looking at you, judging you. He wants to offer you his love first and foremost. That's the very first thing is him saying, I love you. I want you. And then he's going to help you work through the stuff. And the look, Jesus Christ brought us together in a singles group at Bayside Church. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another tangible example of how God is real. If if you can surrender the intellectual barrier and just understand that getting sober is the most important thing, you will be willing to accept the concept of a higher power. Yeah. You'll be willing to surrender your will to a, a higher power. Because I will submit to you that everybody I've ever met who's tried to get sober that can't get sober, their ego is still in the captain's chair at some place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're still trying to control everything. This is where the higher power thing becomes extremely important is because it gets you out of the captain's chair. And one of the things that you always say that helped helped me so much is, I forget which which step it is, but but as it relates to sobriety and Christianity, this idea of powerlessness, we were born powerless over sin. Okay, right. And so when you look at uh, you, the, the fact that maybe you're an alcoholic or you're a food addict or whatever it is, it's just another sin that you're powerless over. And that's why that's Jesus right. died to release you from that sin. So that's what it is. That's what addiction is. It's just another aspect of the fall, of the fallen nature of, of man, Adam and Eve, trying to take matters into their own hands and say, oh, God didn't really say that. That you can run your own life, and when you run your own life, guess what happens, right? Our, so all addiction is is our life without God, right? Is it not? What we've gotten all the way down to in talking about sobriety in our marriage is the key principle without which you cannot get sober and you will never, ever be able to heal, and that's humility. By surrendering your will to a higher power, you're admitting that you blew it. <laughs> and by saying that only a higher power can restore me to sanity, you're admitting the fact that doing it your own way is a complete disaster. It requires a tremendous amount of humility to do that. Mm -hmm. That humility and that key humility is the reason why our marriage is successful yeah. and why it's been harmonious. Mm -hmm. It's not about us. I don't have to win. Uh, I don't have to fight to the death to be right. I think the moral of the story is humility and surrendering our will. We surrender our will to each other. Yeah. We humble ourselves to each other in our marriage the same way that we humbled ourselves and surrendered our will in order to get through our steps to change our behavior in order to get and stay sober. It's the crux. People have written thousands of books on this and stuff like that. But it's like if you can't be humble enough to say, wow, I blew it. I need help. Yeah. That's where that I'm insane. My life is unmanageable. Mm-hmm. I'm powerless over alcohol. I'm unmanageable. I'm insane. I need help. I need to put myself aside and get help from somebody bigger than me. Yep. 
If you can't do that, you're not going to be able to stay married. You're not going to be able to get sober. If you really take a good, honest look at everything like that and look at every dysfunctional relationship, dysfunctional company, dysfunctional politician, et cetera, et cetera, you will see that there is ego and absolute lack of surrender, lack of and trying the exact opposite, which is Mm -hmm. when you try to control and manipulate people, places and things. A really good book is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and that says everything about what we want to get across in this podcast. It's by Peter Scazzaro. Great book. A lot of people talk about it on their podcasts and stuff. But his main crux is you cannot be spiritually mature if you are emotionally immature. That's such a huge part of this podcast, whether it's dealing with your own stuff, family dynamics, codependency, alcoholism, all that stuff, is is we want you to get to a point where you're able to look at this stuff and work through it so that you can be emotionally healthy, uh, emotionally and spiritually and physically and all those sorts of things because they all work together and sobriety is such a huge part of that. Amen. Amen. If you are struggling, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. If you are interested in being part of this podcast, love to hear from you, too. Again, uh, JodyStevens.org um, is my website. You can reach out to me. Connect with Jody Stevens at Yahoo.com. Connect with Jody Stevens at Yahoo.com. And uh, I would love to hear from you. You can have a healthy, successful marriage. You can have healthy, yes. successful relationships. Amen. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous plus a solid relationship with the one true higher power, Jesus Christ, can help you get to where you want to go and you will not miss anything you think you might be missing today in the process. And one of the huge parts of that, you guys, is forgiveness. And in the next podcast, I'm going to be talking with a great friend of mine, Lori Lara, and we're going to talk about forgiveness, what it is, what it isn't, the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. They're not the same things. All the aspects of forgiveness. So don't miss it.